We are now, it's gone by pretty fast, we're in the last week of Heaven's Joys. You know, we first started, we thought, well, we got seven weeks to talk about this, and boom, it's, it's gone by quickly. And there's still a lot that we could probably pursue, but I think we've gone as deep as we need to go. Because when you get into heaven, as we've talked about, there's an awful lot of speculation out there that people give that isn't necessarily scriptural. In fact, I was listening to a very respected theologian and a question and answer um, he had on heaven, and he started off his answer, and I would raise my hand and say, uh, you can't go there. You know, because a lot we don't know. But we've tried to find out what God has given to us. And today we're going to go into the last week on heaven, and we're going to be in an area where the Bible is even spoke less about this section than it has about the others. And that is. What happens in the intermediate state between death and the resurrection of our bodies in the millennial kingdom? From the Biblical Doctrines book, talking about this, it says this, In the perfection of sanctification, believers will have a heart undisturbed by the deceitful lusts of sin, truly godly ambitions and aspirations, and a physical body that is able to carry out those holy impulses without a moment's distraction or weariness. And therefore, they will be able to enjoy the full bounties of the new creation God has created for his people. But that situation that that was just talking about will occur after the body has been resurrected and made complete by God. What happens until then? That's what we're going to delve into today. Because in our review of heaven, we have mainly focused on our eternal state and what will be in the eternal heaven, what it will be like, what we will be like, what we will do, beginning with our return with Jesus when he comes to establish his millennial reign and then the period after that. Well, the first thing we know is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you know, it's absent from the body. There's no body there. We did cover a little bit of this that happens immediately upon our death back in week two. We just touched on it. I want to review it for just a moment. If you remember, while hanging on the cross, Jesus turned to the thief who was being crucified with him and said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And, that's in, uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 5.52, it says, We are changed in the twinkling of an eye. 15. Christian 15.52. Sorry about that. I just, I just, I just, I just, I just, 
Yeah. Thank you, Bill. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says that we are changed in the twinkling of an eye. And from what we read, what we mentioned, is a twinkle is faster than a blink. It's the time it takes for light to flash off your pupil. It's basically instantly. <clears throat> and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, through chapter 5, verse 10, we read this. And I'm going to go all the way. I'm not going to read this whole passage. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 14, it says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And then in verse 16, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that, this is starting in chapter 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For if we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So this is talking about what happens after death. Absent from the body, at home with the Lord. And then if we go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verses 21 to 23, we read this. And that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You know, we think that, that sin impacted humanity, and it did. But it also impacted creation. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wilbur Smith, who lived from 1894 to 1976 wrote this. It says, he said, however abundant the 
scriptural data might be regarding the resurrection of believers and their life in heaven, the state of the soul between death and resurrection is rarely referred to in the Bible. On the same topic, Robert Culver quoted from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia saying this, the New Testament places emphasis on the and I have to I have to pause before I say this word so I don't get my tang tangled. <laughs> Eschatological developments at the end and leaves many things connected with the intermediate state in darkness. In other words, it doesn't tell us a lot about what's coming in this intermediate state. But this does not mean that we are totally left in the dark because we're not. There is enough there to put aside some theories that are now being taught and erroneously being taught. The first theory that's erroneously being taught is called soul sleep or conditioner, conditional mortality. Soul sleep is a belief that after a person dies... His or her soul sleeps until the resurrection and the final judgment. Groups that teach soul sleep are the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Christadelphians. Now, the chances are nobody here has ever heard of a Christadelphian. Um, there is, in the Treasure Valley, a Christadelphian ecclesia church in Caldwell, it meets in someone's home. There's only 120,000 of them in the world, but they've been around for a long, long time. And there's a few lesser-known groups. Seventh-day Adventism teaches that after death, believers are not conscious of anything, and their souls become completely inert until the time of the final resurrection of the dead. And during this period of soul sleep, the soul resides in the memory of God. I can't figure that out. But anyway, that's what they say. Jehovah's Witnesses teach a kind of a soul sleep, but would be more accurately called soul annihilation. The teaching that at death the soul ceases to exist, and then only the souls of the redeemed will be resurrected, or the Jehovah's Witness followers. <coughs> and there's lots of issues with that on who the redeemed are in there because at first there was only 144,000 and they passed that mark and so they had to do all kinds of hoop jumping to get there. Now, up front, the doctrine of soul sleep is not biblically sound. It's very unsound for several reasons. But here's some of what they use to justify what they believe. The first thing is the use of the word sleep in the Bible. If you turn to Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 40, going to verse 56, we have the story of Jesus or Jairus approaching Jesus because his daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. And in the story, we're going to pick it up at verse 49. We read here in Luke 8:49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, "Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore." 
But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe, she w- and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. I wish I had a YouTube of this. Okay? They began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. For I delivered you to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then we go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And here we read, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So asleep here is died. Okay? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we have these three situations where sleep Asleep is referring to people who have died. This does not mean that people who are dead have fallen asleep, as the um, Seventh-day Adventists teach. When the Bible describes a person as sleeping in relation to death, this is not referring to literal sleep or soul sleep. Regarding verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, MacArthur wrote this. We do not need to grieve as do the rest of the world, meaning that those who have no hope. No hope of what? No hope of seeing Christ. No hope of reunion. They were hopeful of all of them. All true believers in this bond of love would be reunited in the presence of the Lord when he came. To borrow the language again of 1 Corinthians 15. And so death is for us merely the sleep of the body. The spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. But the body goes into sleep awaiting the resurrection. 
Another commentator, David Guzik, wrote this. Sleep was a common way to express death in the ancient world. But among pagans, it was almost always seen as eternal sleep. Though Paul, using idioms common in his day, referred to death as sleep, it does not prove the erroneous idea of soul sleep that the present dead in Christ are in a state of suspended animation waiting for a resurrection to consciousness. Remember Philippians 1.23. It says this, To be with Christ is very far better. You're not asleep. You're very far better than the present state of the communion with the Lord and the blessed activity of his service. It is evident, and a, a guy named Edmund Hebert wrote this, it is evident that sleep as applied to believers cannot be intended to teach that the soul is unconscious. For believers, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home with the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So it, we are absent from the body, but we are at home with the Lord. It's not till the resurrection of the bodies that those are brought back together. And then it gives, as we said earlier, Philippians 1.23, where Paul said, For me is to live as Christ, and to die is gain. He said that in Philippians 1.21. And he goes on in verse 22, But if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to be depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, for unbelievers, the prognosis is far worse. And we'll get into more of this next week. But if you turn to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, Jesus gave the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Now, for your information, there is some debate whether this is a parable or a story. Some people say parable. Many people say a story. And the reason why they say a story rather than a parable is this is the only, I'll use the word parable for now, this is the only parable-type story in the Bible where a person was actually called by name. Every other parable, there's no other specific name mentioned. You know, if you go to the prodigal son, it wasn't Bill or Steve or John, it was the prodigal son. He had a son. He had another son and the father. And it, you know, there was no naming and the the woman who lost her coin. I mean you go on and on. No other parable has the name specific of a person. So many people and I would I would tend to agree that this is not a parable that it's a story but you know you use it like either one I mean it, it, it's 
got a parable type feel to it, but it's, it's actually a, a, a story about a specific person. But anyway, starting in verse 9, um, it says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple linen, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid as his gate. You mean uh, 19? 19. Yeah. What happened is I printed this, and I didn't print the one in front of the nine. Um, verse 21 this is Lazarus longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom didn't go to sleep okay and the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades didn't go to sleep he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now the point here that we're going to make is the abode of the rich man, he's not asleep. He's well aware of the torment he is in. And Lazarus is not asleep. He is in complete comfort. So there's no inert body where you're sleeping and waiting. Another passage that adds to this thought is the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross. We talked about it earlier for a moment in Luke 23, 39 to 43. It says, One of the criminals who were, hang, who were hanged there was hurtling abuse at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deaths. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, as he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said, Truly, I say to you today you will be with me in paradise not tomorrow not until the bodily resurrection not till you wake from this sleep that will last at least 2,000 years today you will be with me in paradise it's very interesting and I don't want to get off on a tangent but I'm just going to maybe get you thinking a little bit because there is an answer to it why was Jesus crucified with two other people other than it was prophesied that he would be between two thieves. You know, we, we hear this story so much, and there's a reason for it. There's a very interesting reason, but uh, we, we just hear that. You know, why did they crucify him between two other thieves? Well, it teaches us that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was because it was a mockery of the Roman coronation of, of the Caesar. Mm-hmm. But it's a very interesting story, but we can't go there. We'll never get done. <laughs> but today, you will be with me in paradise. There's never any inclination anywhere in Scripture 
that you go to sleep. It's your, your body is in the grave, yes. But you're separated from the soul. The soul is still very much alive and with the believer is with the Lord. And so your loved one that has died, who was a believer, he's not sleeping. He's in the presence of God or she's in the presence of God. In some of the glory that we talked about earlier. Not in heaven yet, but in the presence of God. Is it inaccurate to use the um, place of paradise? It's an actual place where souls might go that are within, that are Christian and going to be raised again? Well, I, I don't know really how to answer that real quickly. Uh-huh. Um, we're present with the Lord. Right. You know, and is that is that paradise like it says in the rich man and Lazarus, or did that kind of um, get completed when Jesus rose from the dead? Um, we could get into that and talk about that for a while, but we would get way down the road over here. And right. We need to come back. I was road. just curious because a lot of people have counseled my wife that that um, Kurt is in paradise now. And and not just you know suspended in like the the rich man mm-hmm. in hell or whatever. Well, the rich man's in Hades. He, the rich man, no one has yet been. And we'll get into this next week sure. too. No one is in hell yet, right? Because the judgment seat of Christ has not taken place. Mm-hmm. The great white throne judgment. That's when people will be Go ushered into there, that. Yeah. But they're not sleeping. I, I always get a kick out of, uh, and I know they mean well, of people say, you know, someone dies, well, rest in peace. Yeah. You know? Well, let's say you lived a life of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. That's nothing compared to eternity. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, that's, just, that's just a saying that always just kind of... Didn't that come from Catholicism? Probably. I think it did. I don't know. It, yeah. I know they, they mean well, but I mean, come on. And as we said, we're going to rest in heaven. We've shown that, but the rest is not going to be sitting there doing nothing. Right. You know, but we won't be tired. We won't be uh, fatigued. You know, that's not going to happen. Now, the next big thing that people think of, and this is... Uh, believed a lot more commonly than soul sleep is the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is a place or state of temporary purification where souls can complete their journey to heaven after death. Bruce Erdley's favorite question and answer site gotquestions.com summarized it like this purgatory is a place that a Christian soul goes to after death to be cleansed of the sins that had not been fully satisfied during life now they're not saying there is a place but that is the definition of it religions that believe in purgatory are 
Catholicism, Roman Catholicism is big into purgatory. Eastern Orthodoxy is big into uh, purgatory. And so is Anglicanism. And one site summarized the teaching of purgatory in this way. Quote, in Catholic theology, and I would probably leap over to those other two teachings as well, it is believed that those who, die, those who die with venial sins may be purified in purgatory before any entering into full communion with God. The length of time spent in this purifying state varies depending on the individual circumstances and the level of spiritual development. Now, a venial sin is a kind of hard to really pin it down. I mean, you can, but it, you can't. It's a lesser sin that does not result in a complete separation from God and eternal damnation in hell as an unrepentant mortal sin would. A venial <laughs> sin consists of acting as one should not without actual incompatibility with the state of grace that a mortal sin implies. They do not break one's friendship with God, but injure it. Now, if you try to put a nice big definition on is this or is this not, you can kind of make that what you want it to be. In Orthodox Christianity, in Orthodoxy, Prayers for the dead play a significant role in helping departed souls pass through the process of judgment and cleansing required for entry into paradise. This process is often referred to as, quote, toll houses, rather than a specific mention of purgatory itself. So those that believe in purgatory teach that purgatory is there for purification. It is an intermediate state where souls are purified before going to heaven. In purgatory, an individual needs to go through a process of atonement in order to enter heaven. In purgatory, prayers from loved ones can assist the person in being released more quickly from purgatory. Pope Benedict the 16th. Now, if you don't remember all those numbers and who he was, he was the guy just before Pope Francis that's there now. He was the guy that resigned. He died in 2022. He said this, Purgatory is necessary. We must be cleansed in some way before entering into our full inheritance. So this is not an ancient teaching. It is, but it's still very much in the Catholic theology. And we could spend a lot of time doing more research into the abhorrent views of purgatory. Let's look at why all of this is so totally unbiblical. First, the idea of purgatory as a physical place became a formal Roman Catholic doctrine in the late 11th century. It was taught within the church before then, but it became official doctrine then. I have a book, and it's a very difficult book to read. Um, you just read a little bit at a time, more of an encyclopedia. 
called the Catholic Catechism at home. And it says this about purgatory, quote, Who are the souls of the just? They are those who leave the body in the state of sanctifying grace and are therefore destined by right to enter heavenly glory. Their particular judgment was favorable, although conditional. They must first be cleansed before they can see the face of God. The condition is always fulfilled. So the people that die always have to go through purgatory, according to this book, but it's always fulfilled. Now, also from the same book, it states specifically that the Catholic Church does not say whether purgatory is a place or a determined space where the souls are cleansed. Is it physical or is it all just spiritual? They won't say that. They won't go there. I remember years ago, we went to a funeral of Connie's aunt. Her name was Irene. And Irene did not live a life of physical luxury. She was challenged in a lot of ways. Part of it was her own doing, and part of it, I'm sure, wasn't. But I still remember the priest to this day that gave this uh, eulogy, said, well, Irene suffered so much in this world that she went straight to heaven. She didn't have to go to purgatory because she already suffered what she would have suffered in purgatory. Remember that, Connie? Yep. I'm just sitting there just going, oh. <laughs> makes your head hurt. And I don't know why the priest would know that anyway. But John MacArthur wrote, quote, and he's right here, Purgatory was invented to accommodate Catholicism's denial of justification by faith alone. And it offers false hope to millions who anticipate ample time beyond the grave, grave, perhaps eons, if necessary, to achieve their own justification. Robert Culver wrote this, The doctrine of purgatory, together with the sacrament of penance, or the confessional, is, and the sacrifice of the mass, is the economic engine for which centuries financially supported the vast hierarchical structure of the institutions of the papal church. He added, Rome's teaching regarding purgatory is not in every respect uniform. So if we would go different places, we would get different teachings. It's kind of like trying to nail jello to the wall. So what does scripture say about what is needed to enter heaven and enjoy the presence of God? Clearly, there is no place or state of temporary purification where souls can complete their journey to heaven after death. Going back to the story of Lazarus and the rich man. If purgatory was real, and it was a place where a person's soul goes after death to be cleansed of their sins that had not been fully satisfied during their life, would we have Luke 16, 25 to 26 included in the story? I'd say no. And what's that say? 
And Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted and you are in agony. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. There is a chasm. It's fixed. You can't go. You don't work yourself out of purgatory into heaven. There are several passages that deal with this. Justification by faith is the declaration that a person has been restored to a state of righteousness through belief and trust in the work of Christ rather than on the basis of one's own accomplishment. Some supporting biblical texts are. We could go to more. Second Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew nor sin to be our sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin on our behalf. Now we can just sit there and think about that for the rest of the year. Okay? And get lots of juicy good stuff out of that. <coughs> Christ became sin on our behalf and because of that we became the righteousness of God in him. We can think about that for next year. We cannot go through a process of atonement in a transitional state and be cleansed before entering heaven. Christ has become sin in our half that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't go to a purgatory and work through the rest of the stuff that we didn't do. The venial sins. Romans 3, 21 to 24. Says this. But now apart from the law. Righteous, the, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We have been justified. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. It's hard for me to imagine it, that God looks, he, he gives me his that he gives me righteousness through Jesus Christ. Am I righteous? No. Are you? No. But when God looks at us, that has been paid for by Christ. 100%. Not 93% and then we got to go spend X number of time in purgatory. Romans 5, 17 to 21. We're going to pound on a lot of verses here because we just need to get this. For by the offense of one, death reigned through the, through the one. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. 
the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18. So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, so that through the one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, that's Adam, and also through the obedience of one, Christ, many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Going to the next chapter, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 1 to 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. You get that? There is no condemnation. God sent his own son as an offering for sin. Philippians 3.9 And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Now, if purgatory is required to be cleansed in some way, how is that not a work? It takes away the gift of God. I can see it now. If purgatory existed, we're all there. Hey, I only had to be there for two years. You had to be there for 37. Wouldn't that happen? No, it's a free gift of God. It's not a work. None of it. And then Hebrews 9.27. This should be the clincher. If nothing else is. Just as it is destined for people to die once, after this comes judgment. It doesn't say. It is destined for people to die once, and after this comes cleansing or purification so you can enter into your full inheritance. It doesn't say that. And we really don't want to stop with verse 27. We want to go on to verse 28 of Hebrews 9. Go back to verse 27 to bring it in together. And just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without a reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We do nothing to contribute to our pay 
for our salvation or our cleansing or our righteousness or whatever we want to call it. We do nothing. Second Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have received it. Salvation is totally the work of God, and he gives it to us as a gift. The sacrifice of Christ was righteous, and it is imputed to all believers. Romans 2, 4, or 4, 2 to 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now through the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but what is due. That's what purgatory is teaching. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So to close this discussion, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult for man, mankind, to come to grips with the scriptural teaching that we can do nothing to save ourselves from sin and damnation. Nada. Zero. And that's hard for us. Every false religion in the world, and we could just line them up, every one of them, that has ever existed from creation until now, with the exception of biblical Christianity, places some or all of the responsibility of gaining acceptance to God upon the person. Every one of them does. And those who believe in purgatory even extend it beyond this life. Of course they say it's guaranteed you're going to make it. Even though it might take eons. <laughs> If you haven't memorized this passage, I'd memorize it. Many of you have. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as we come to our conclusion on heaven, I was trying to think of how to close this. It'd be kind of fun to start all over again week one and go through it again, but I couldn't think of anything more appropriate, and I've given this before when I spoke upstairs a few months ago, 
But this has stayed on my mind, and it will stay on my mind for a long time to come. I couldn't think of anything more appropriate than to present again the crystal clear presentation of what the gospel is as given by Vody Bacham in the 2022 Shepherds Conference in March 19th. It is this gospel that for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, it paves the way for our redemption through which God will take us to heaven, this beautiful place that we're talking about, for an eternal dwelling with God and with Jesus Christ and with angels and with the other believers of all the ages, not just the ones today, but going all the way back. As 1 Peter 1.4 says, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. To an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And this is what Vodi said the gospel was. And if you didn't get a copy of this when I gave it out, I can give you copies. It makes still me, even though I've read it and typed it and all that kind of still kind of makes the hair stand on the back of my head. The gospel. God created the world. Genesis 1. And as God created man, he put man in the garden to keep the garden. Genesis 2. And he gave man a command and he held that man to a perfect, perpetual obedience to that command. And he promised him life if he kept it and death if he didn't. And he didn't keep it. And he ate. And because he ate, and because of that one man's sin entered to in because of that one man, sinner entered into the world and death through sin. Genesis three. And everyone born from that man through ordinary generation inherited man's sin nature. Romans five. And because of that sin nature, sins proceed from it. Jeremiah 17. And our world is broken because of that sin. And we stand guilty before a holy and a righteous God in Hebrews 4. And we know that he is holy, Revelation 3. And we know that he is righteous, Psalm 97. And we crave justice. But the problem is if God gives us justice, we all die. Romans 3. And so that God in his goodness, in his mercy, sent forth his son, Galatians 4, who was not born of ordinary generation. He was born of a virgin, Matthew 1. Yes, the virgin birth matters. Because if he's born of ordinary generation, he's born in sin. And because he's not born of ordinary generation, he's not born in sin. He is clean of sin. His record is clean. And he keeps his record clean. And he obeys God's law. And because he's fully God and fully man, John 1, 1 Corinthians 15, he obeys the law of God on our behalf in his active obedience and in his passive obedience and in his passive obedience, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God laid upon him the iniquity of his all, Isaiah 53. And Christ died for our sin once for all, the just for the unjust, Romans 3. 
And God imputes our sinfulness to him. And he nails our sinfulness to the tree in 2 Peter 2. And Christ dies and raises again on the third day for our justification, Acts 2. And there is another imputation. The righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to us so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 3. And that faith demonstrates repentance of sin and leads to salvation, 2 Corinthians 7, so that all those who come to Christ may enter in, Hebrews 4, so that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved, not only saved, but sanctified, because he's the firstborn of many brethren, Hebrews 2. We're justified and we're adopted into the family of God, Romans 8. And we're sanctified, and as his children, we begin to bear family resemblance, and we're further sanctified throughout this life by the very same gospel that saves us, Hebrews 10, until one day when it's all said and done, we're not just saved from the penalty of sin, Romans 6. We're not just saved from the power of sin, 1 Corinthians 15. But one day we're glorified and saved from the very presence of sin, Revelation 21. That's the gospel. And we've been talking for seven weeks about being saved from the presence of sin. Isaiah 35.10 And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And then Romans, Romans Revelation 21.3 and 4 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying Behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Just think. We can all be part of that. Is that statement on the HBC site? You said uh, no. when you put it up there? No, but I have, I have a, yeah, a hard copy. Okay. Are there any questions? Because I think we're through with our short study on heaven. I know 